the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. When he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Jesus, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you very much, Joe, for reading. And do please keep that passage open. I'm going to be referring, it to, uh, referring to it during the talk. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, send your Holy Spirit to each one of us here this morning, we pray. Help us to set aside our cares and concerns, and instead, help us to focus on you and on your word. Teach us something new and fire us up to live and work to your praise and glory this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, let me remind everybody uh, very briefly of the context where we are in the story. Uh, John's gospel is written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Now, in previous weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' farewell discourse. That's in chapters 15 and 16, his final prayers for himself and his disciples, and also his prayers for us, those who will believe in him uh, following the disciples' witness. An opposition to Jesus has been building, and today's reading is the first in a section which we might entitle the trial and the passion of Jesus, that is him going to his death, the trial and the passion of Jesus. And so our reading today, we heard about Jesus' arrest, and the rest of chapter 18 and 19 look at Jesus' trial, his death on the cross, 
and his burial. So it's, it's really getting down to the season of Easter and we're seeing uh, what actually happened to Jesus. I've got four points today, so here are the four points. Jesus is the only one who is in full control. That's the first point. Second point, Jesus is determined to do God's will. Third point, everybody else falls short. And my fourth and final point is that salvation comes from Jesus alone. So those are the four points. Let's get into the first one straight away. Jesus is the only one in full control. Let's just look carefully at this account so we can see how Jesus is in full control at all times. Right at the beginning of the passage, he finishes praying and then he proceeds to put God's plan into action. He intentionally goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knows that Judas and his friends, the chief priests, the officers of the chief priests and the soldiers detachment, they're gonna find him there. If you knew that you were about to be betrayed, would you intentionally go somewhere uh, that you know your betrayer is likely to find you? But that is precisely what Jesus does. He intentionally goes to the garden. And then John, later on in the passage in verse four, John tells us that Jesus is in full control. Jesus takes the initiative and he confronts the soldiers and the officials boldly. And their response is to draw back and fall to the ground. So once they fall into the ground, a second time he confronts the soldiers and the officials, verses seven and eight there. And in verse nine, we see that Jesus even arranges for his own words to be fulfilled. In chapter six, verse 39, he stated that none of his disciples would be lost. And sure enough, with the notable exception of Judas Iscariot, all of his disciples are allowed to go free while he is arrested. Later on in the passage in verse 11, Jesus confronts Peter, who clumsily tries to prevent Jesus' arrest through violence against the chief priest's servant. Jesus tells him to put his sword away. Violence is not the way forward. Jesus is going to allow himself to be arrested. Jesus then allows himself to be bound and led off to Annas, the chief priest's father-in-law, without resisting. He knows fully what will happen to him, and yet he allows the people around him to arrest him and lead him away, ultimately, to his death on the cross. So in this situation, while others around Jesus are spinning out of control, Jesus is in complete control of the situation. So that's the first point. Second point, Jesus is determined to do God's will. Let's look closely at verse 11 again. Jesus is rebuking Peter here by affirming that it is his intention to drink the cup which the Father has given him. Now in the Old Testament, there are many references to people drinking the cup, and it's almost always the cup of God's wrath, God's anger. Let's take a look at uh, Jeremiah 25. Don't turn it up now, but in Jeremiah 25, and following verses, the drinking of the cup of God's wrath is a graphic symbol of punishment which is meted out on the people of Israel as well as the people of other foreign nations. So Jesus' reference to the drinking of the cup in this verse clearly tells us 
that he is expecting to take punishment, the punishment from God the Father himself. But it's clearly not the punishment for, for his own sin. We know that Jesus lived a life completely without sin. No, this is the punishment for the sins of the world. It's the punishment for our sin, for my sin and your sin. That punishment is the punishment that Jesus is going to take upon himself at the cross. The prophet Isaiah predicted that the Christ, God's anointed king, would suffer the punishment which we deserve. Here's a reminder from Isaiah chapter 53. And this, remember, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The cup of God the Father's wrath, which Jesus was about to drink, was none other than going to the cross to experience God's righteous anger for all the sins of the whole world. God the Father is about to lay on Jesus the iniquity, that is the sin or unrighteousness, of all of us. So while others are looking after their perceived self-interests, protecting their power and influence, saving their own skins from those who've got worldly power, keeping out of trouble, Jesus takes a different approach. Jesus is determined to do God's will, whatever the cost. So that's the second point. Third point is that everybody else in this story falls short. Let's just take a look at all the other individuals and groups mentioned in the passage. It's a whole gaggle of them, so let's go one by one. Judas, he's decided to betray Jesus, throws in his lot with the chief priests and the Roman soldiers. He's their stooge and their guide. He helps them to arrest Jesus, and ultimately he's complicit in the death of Jesus on the cross. He takes the money and betrays Jesus for it. He bears full responsibility. Okay, enough for Jesus. For Judas, what about Peter? Peter attempts to take control of the situation by wielding his sword, which is probably an, a bit of an overgrown dagger, and he chops off Malchus's ear. The chief priest's servant cuts off his ear. Peter completely misunderstands what's going on. In John chapter 12, a few chapters back, Jesus has predicted his death. The crowd clearly understood at that time what he meant, but not Peter, apparently. Peter tries to take matters into his own hands and uses violence to attempt to work out a solution which he thinks is the best approach. But Jesus clearly and firmly rebukes him. The problem is that Peter is trying to impose his own solution rather than accept God's plan. So Jesus corrects him by affirming that he will be going God's way and will be, drink and will be drinking the cup which the Father has given him. Ultimately, despite the ill-judged, violent interlude which Peter introduces, 
he flees with the rest of Jesus' disciples as the soldiers and officials arrest Jesus. Okay, so much for Judas, so much for Peter. What about the other disciples? The other disciples are on the sidelines. They don't stand with Jesus or seek to get involved. The Lord makes it possible for them all to leave the scene safely, and they're only too happy to leg it when the opportunity arises. They stand by while this justice is inflict, injustice is inflicted on Jesus. They're too keen to protect their own skins when things begin to get violent. Okay, what about the Roman soldiers? They're just following orders. They've been told to accompany the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees to oversee the arrest and keep the peace. And that is what they do. The Roman authorities, however, are complicit with this injustice as they help the Jewish officials carry out the arrest. Most likely, the Jewish officials would have previewed their plans with the Roman authorities, and they get the go-ahead. The Roman authorities, for all, for all and all of their servants indeed, are complicit in the injustice which is about to be inflicted upon Jesus. They bear full responsibility. Let's look at the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish authorities. They're acting on the express orders of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Back in chapter 11, we learned that there was a meeting of the Sanhedrin at which the chief priests and the Pharisees decided that it would be better for everyone that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And they're about to do just exactly that. And Jesus is that one man. He's their target. They think they're solving a short-term problem which they're having, a threat to their power and the influence in their country in the face of the risk that the Romans will come and depose them, taking away their position and their power. They're worried about their influence, status, and livelihood. It's going to be taken away, and they're ready to pervert justice and commit murder to protect their positions. So while Jesus is in complete control and resolutely determined to drink the cup of God's wrath for each one of us, everybody else falls short. Okay, three points down, fourth and final point. And that is salvation comes from Jesus alone. Salvation comes from Jesus alone. And we see this from the last verse in our passage. Let me just read it. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So there John reminds us that it was Caiaphas who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for all the people. That verse back in John 11 where Caiaphas made that prediction reads as follows. He's speaking to the whole Sanhedrin here and he says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So that was at a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And a bit of background on that worth, worth knowing is that Annas, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law, was also a former high priest. And not only that, but in fact five of Annas's sons have also been high priests at various times, and the current high priest, of course, is Caiaphas, his son-in-law. 
So I think we can see that there's something of a dynasty going on in the Sanhedrin around this time. Annas and all his relatives have cornered the high priest position and are handing it from person to person within the family. Any threat to this status quo would have been a major uh, concern to anyone involved. So Annas and Caiaphas almost certainly thought that they were fixing a short-term problem, something which was getting out of hand due to the popularity of Jesus and the signs and miracles that he was performing. But little did they know that the death of Jesus would indeed mean that the death of one man uh, would actually uh, take care of the sins of the whole world. That death would redeem all of God's people for all time. So Annas and Caiaphas are in fact complicit in a much more important event the evil in their hearts and their wicked intentions to kill Jesus will be used to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, which, which I, I read earlier. God's Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed king, is about to suffer death. This event will fundamentally change the people of God. God is about to fulfill his promise to Abraham that his children will be numerous as the stars, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. The salvation which Jesus' death on the cross brings will be available to everyone, everywhere, who repents and puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus resolutely set his face to go to his death so that all of God's people can be reconciled to God and receive eternal life. While all the others fell short, Jesus persevered, and his death did indeed redeem all of God's people for all time. Jesus alone brings salvation to everyone who will repent and have faith in him. Well, now let's pause uh, for a minute or two and think about what all this means for each one of us. Do we live our lives every day in the knowledge that Jesus is in control and that salvation is from Jesus alone? Or maybe we, we might be looking out for our own interests, perhaps our short-term interests, rather than seeking the ultimate rescue which only Jesus can bring. Do we understand that we fall short and that we need rescue and we need that rescue that only Jesus can give? Are we confident that Jesus has rescued us from the wrath which is to come? Now, for some of us here, uh, this may all be news. Uh, you may have been living your life uh, fixing all those short-term problems that you have to the best of your ability as they come up, and you may have been completely unaware that you're actually shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic of your life, dealing with things as they come up. You may not know that all of us have fallen short. We're all holed below the waterline and that we all need that rescue that Jesus offers. Well, if this is you, please don't panic. Talk to someone who'll be able uh, to help you find out more about the salvation which Jesus offers. Perhaps the person who brought you, or also we run courses here, and we can meet with you face-to-face -to, -face to explain more and to suggest practical ways ahead. But if I may, I'd suggest not, please don't delay. 
uh, it's important to act promptly on maybe something that you might have learned today for the first time. Now, if you have already heard about Jesus' rescue and you consider that you're someone who knows and loves Jesus, that's great news. Uh, I'm going to suggest two things. First, we need to think about worship because if Jesus rescues us, because he rescues us, we owe him worship. We need to recognize Jesus' greatness and we need to honor and obey him. So it's worth asking ourselves, are we worshiping Jesus every day? Do we worship him? Do we honor him? Do we obey him? And secondly, uh, the Lord Jesus has prepared good works in advance for us to be doing. Uh, here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. So this is chapter 2, verse 8 in Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So from that passage, we conclude that God's grace, his free, undeserved favor to each one of us, is the reason that we've been saved. None of us can boast. And each one of us has been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And God has himself prepared those good works in advance for each one of us to do. So my question to each one of us who is in Christ is, how is your program of good works going? Do you know uh, what you're supposed to be doing? And are you working on those good works diligently and to the best of your ability? Our salvation is a free gift. Thanks be to God. We need to respond to his goodness to us and be thinking how we can uh, earn and deserve that greeting of well done, good and faithful servant when the time comes for us to enter into the Lord's presence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love each one of us so much that you are willing to lay down your life for us. As we think about the sacrifice which you made of yourself, we are ashamed that we have fallen short and we're eternally grateful that you have rescued us. Help us to live our lives in ways which please you. Show us how to honor and worship you every day. Show us also those good works which you're calling us to do and equip us with determination to do them to the best of our ability. Amen.